0: Ah, it's our tell show Tuesday, January the fourth, twenty twenty two. We hope your new year is off to a rollicking start, and that you and yours are blessed and healthy and happy and well and taking care of each other. I'm glad you're with us. We got a lot to cover today. Great show. Uh, we're gonna have John W. Miller on. We've been looking forward to this. Uh, John is a journalist by trade. He has made a documentary about Moundsville. That's Moundsville, West Virginia. Uh, I'm going to fly a little West Virginia bias here. I love West Virginia. You want to get on the program, do something West Virginia related. You get to the front of the line. That's just them's the rules. Uh, But this is a great uh, documentary and it touches on a whole lot of things. Basically, a lot of towns, what happens when the initial reason a town exists or it grows because of industry and then that industry goes away? What happens to the town? What does it mean to be in that town? The people left behind, the people leaving. How do they identify themselves? What does it mean? It's a great documentary, and even though it's about Moundsville, West Virginia, it has a lot of applicable lessons and principles to a lot of towns all across America. It's something you can really relate to. It's a great documentary, we're going to talk to John W. Miller here in just a little bit on the program. Do not miss that. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, news media. We're going to talk a little bit about Omicron and COVID and vaccine reporting data. We're going to update that story and much, much more. But let's start with something that we talk about a lot on this program, turning down the noise of the news cycle. We keep talking about it because it's important. Here's the thing about noise. If there's a lot of noise, you're going to miss things. It throws your senses off. It can disorient you. So let's talk for just a minute about how that noise gets created. Uh, our buddy, Nicholas Grossman, we've had him on Herd Tell podcast before. You can go back and listen to his uh, episode. We'd encourage you to do so. Um, was dealing online and on the twitter.com. He's at ngrossman81, uh, also a writer at Arc Digital. Uh, he was dealing with some of the latest conspiracy theories. And what happened here, of course, is uh, folks were talking about uh, an interview with Dr. Robert Malone. From the Joe Rogan podcast, the most popular podcast in the world. And they were talking about mass formation psychosis. Now, let's take a quick side trip for a second. The fact that folks got mass formation psychosis trending by all sending the exact same tweet or variations on the same tweet uh, is irony that is apparently lost to them and they have no self awareness whatsoever. But it's just one of those things where folks say something, and if you just take a step back and look, you're like, okay. Moving on, Nicholas Grossman on Twitter, quote, one of the smartest things about the Internet is Dana Boyd. That's at Zephora, Z-E-P-H-O-R-I on Twitter, if you want to follow her on strategic amplification. Remember that term, strategic amplification. Conspiracy theorists try to hijack it with little use terms because then search engines lead to their content. Here's one upset that the trick isn't working as well. And he uh, mentions an individual who I find to be in bad faith. and I'm not going to mention his name. I'm not going to give him the pub, as we say. Um, Talking about the Google algorithm is clearly broken because of what Nicholas is talking about right here. Anyway, Nick Grossman goes on to say this. Boyd explains the process. Searching with well-used terms leads to mainstream sources. Conspiracy theorists and other misinfo pushers coin new terms or adopt little used ones, then even debunking gets people to search for it, leading more to them. What's happening here is we have this thing called search engine optimization. When I'm writing at Ordinary Times, it's something we spend a lot of time on, making sure there's certain words in it so folks can find it and that it trends well on Google and other search engines. Um, It's a tool, It's like anything else. It can be used for good or bad. You can use a shovel uh, to dig a ditch to save your house from the flood, or you can use it to bury the body of somebody you shouldn't kill. Shovel's just a tool. It doesn't care either which way. It's just going to be what you use it for. So in this case, the tool of search engine optimization is being used for ill. They figured out, the conspiracy theorists and the influencers of bad faith, that if you use terms that nobody else is using, it flags the systems, flags the algorithms, it gets more attention. And then because they're not real terms, even the folks that are trying to debunk or fight against them have to use those terms. They'll search those terms. They'll research those terms and everything leads back to them. It becomes this nice little circle. He quotes, um, he's referencing Dana Boyd here. So let's just go back in time, 2018 uh, at datasociety.net. society.net. Um, it's a medium publication that she was writing in way back in 2018. And, go through her explanation of this because this is really important so much of our news media consumption and our information consumption comes through search engines it's a google world and the rest of us are just playing in it google can be a great and powerful tool you can look up anything from the entire depth and breadth of human knowledge with just a couple clicks heck with voice technology you can just ask it to do it for you that's amazing power that power comes responsibility we need to understand how it works And in this specific case, we need to understand how bad faith actors are working it so that we can turn down the noise, have good information, and then we can fight them by putting out our own good information. So this is what Dana Boyd is writing about strategic amplification. This is very important in understanding how our news media works, because remember, just because you work at CNN or NBC or CBS doesn't mean you're not Googling stories like everybody else, right? Strategic amplification, quoting. From this Dana Boyd piece, in the meantime, you face another challenge. If manipulators are trying to use you to help polarize American society, how do you not take the bait? How do you not allow the trust problem to worsen? First, recognize that the rubric in which you decide what to devote time to is not neutral. I don't mean this in a condescending or pejorative sense. I mean, own the fact that what makes something newsworthy is subjective. That's in bold. Write that down. Own the fact that what makes something newsworthy is subjective. It depends on the power of the actors involved. It depends on the norms of your audience. It depends on the, impl- in, on the implications for specific communities or countries. Many of you have honed muscles to focus on some stories and not others, yet you must also find a hook To make a newsworthy story relevant to your readers, you must navigate business interests alongside the recognition that an exhausted public might prefer junk food. Furthermore, because your organizations talking about media and content and writers and talking heads and people like me, because your organizations are rooted in an industry and culture of competition, you're under pressure to be attentive to what others have deemed newsworthy. There be dragons everywhere. But like a yogi or Jedi, your challenge is to constantly improve your awareness of the pressures and adversaries you face and evolve your strategy for navigating them. Next, recognize that in the networked era, every organizational and communicative process is exploitable. When journalism was the primary information gatekeepers in society, it was harder for a story to break through without journalists being involved. That was for good and bad. But now, just as algorithmic manipulators have learned to engage in search engine optimization and game Twitter's trending topics, media manipulators have figured out how to trick you into telling their story. Accept this and outsmart them. How do you outsmart them? By not being taken in. Everything in our social media realm and in our news media realm and on television and on the internet and anything that has anything to do with media is susceptible to manipulation. Even a good faith product is still a presented product because the people that presented it are human beings. They have biases. They have agendas. They have business models. Those aren't even bad things. They're not negative things. That's just how the world works. So we need to understand how these things work. And then we need to hold those things accountable, like news media sources, like public institutions, like government information sources. And then when bad faith actors start using the system to their own gains, we'll be able to recognize it. Understand something. It's like the old joke about bank tellers. They don't show them counterfeit money. They just show them the good money over and over and over again. And they get so used to the good money, anything that's counterfeit starts showing up. Well, that's not completely true on how they do it, but there is a point to be made there. If we're holding people accountable to good information and we don't tolerate bad information, more importantly we don't tolerate bad faith actors that we know are putting out bad information for no good or discernible reason, then we lessen the environment that they have to operate in. We can't control them, but we can shrink the space they can operate in. We can shrink their influence and we can shrink their ability to fool and sucker people in. Yes, there's a sucker born every minute and some people are going to believe the lie no matter what, but we can do our own part to lessen the ecosystem and make it a healthier one, which will drive the bad faith actors back to the outer regions of it and the fringes of it where they belong. But it starts with understanding how the system works and how this manipulation works. This is something we were talking about with Todd Kelly on our last show of 2021. It's why I wanted to talk to him about it. What do you do with people that they just want the attention, even negative attention? You can't argue with them in good faith. You can't call them out because even calling them out gives them more attention. This is how it works. Change the ecosystem. Deny them the oxygen to function in that ecosystem. Let their learned behavior for doing wicked and evil things make it, make it an unsustainable business model for them and make their audience less. It's all you can do. It's a hard, messy, ugly world out there. And social media just amplifies what the world already is. Hard, messy, and ugly. That's part of being a citizen in the year of our Lord 2022. It's part of being in the arena as we talk about the old Teddy Roosevelt quote. This is how you get bloodied and beat up a little bit. But it's also where the fight is. If all the good people yield social media and news media and all our information sources to the bad people, that's all that will be left. We can never do that. Let's understand how the manipulation works, not just decrying it. So we can spot it. We can identify it we can call it out and then we can start doing something about it a little bit at a time one facebook post at a time one tweet at a time and one hotel episode at a time at least we're going to try to more hotel right after this Tell so You might have heard tell that a lot of states tried to do these things like vaccine lotteries. They're not really lotteries. They're almost like game shows, but it was giveaways and things to try to get people to get vaccinated and try to deal with the COVID-19 issues. Um, a lot of states did a lot of different things. I'm going to read from Mountain State Spotlight. Uh, they do great journalism in my home state of West Virginia, uh, reading from there. And this was written by Ian Carball. I hope I'm saying his name right. I apologize if I don't. Quote, When the state of Ohio announced its vaccination lottery in May, the nation's first and the inspiration for West Virginia Governor Jim Justice to do his do it for baby doll uh, vaccine lottery, Dr. Alan Walkley, a researcher and professor at Boston University Medical School, was intrigued, quote, while I had really hoped that the Ohio lottery would work because I wanted as many va- people vaccinated as possible, I was surprised that it didn't initially, end quote, while the state saw an immediate bump in vaccination, Walkie looked closer. Quote, media reports only looked at Ohio, which is understandable, but you have to have a control group. Wally's study, which compared Ohio's vaccination rate before and after the lottery, was announced to similar national numbers, found that the bump in vaccinations in Ohio coincided with a bump across the country. The program was announced just as the U.S. Food and Drug Administration cleared vaccines for use in people aged 12 to 16. We concluded that the Ohio lottery, while a good idea and a worthy try, Didn't seem to have a large impact on vaccinations, Walkie said. There's also charts to this on uh, MountainStateSpotlight.org. If you want to go look at the charts and the underlying data, which we always uh, encourage you to do, always dig into your stories. Don't just read the headlines and blurbs. Dig into them. Continuing. In West Virginia, vaccination rates continued to decline even after the lottery was announced. Though a small increase around West Virginia Day coincided with a similar national trend, Though over 376,000 people registered for the Do It For Baby Dog lottery, it's unclear how many received a vaccination because of it. Take 74-year-old Ralph Paw, for the first winner of a luxury truck through the state lottery. He had received his vaccination back in March. Deterred by the taxes he would have to pay on the truck, Paul was unsure if he was going to keep it. Moreover, his wife Susie, 73, said, I don't think I'll ever be able to step up into that truck, which had doors over a foot off the ground. It's a lifted, uh, customized Ford F-150 is what we're talking about here. Very popular in West Virginia, not so great with uh, elderly people. Uh, back to Mountain State Spotlight. A young couple passing the pause as they were leaving the Capitol grounds congratulating the winner, shouting, nice truck, you want to buy it, Paul replied with a grin. As whether, in retrospect, implementing a lottery was a mistake, Walkie said, I think states need to try something. I know that they haven't had much of an effect. I would think it would be a mistake to keep doing them in the future. We need to learn from them and move on. With vaccinated nations growing stagnant across the country, Gandhi warns that governments are increasingly turning towards what she called disincentives. Quote, you can see this new move to make life difficult for those who are unvaccinated, Gandhi said. What I mean by that is restaurants and employers and businesses saying, show me your vaccine card. Ultimately, justice has had much more grim take on what it will take to get people to get vaccinated. The reality is if this thing gets terribly bad, it will take that for us to awaken to the fact that we absolutely should all be vaccinated. Justice asked during a twenty July 29 press conference referring to the recent spike in cases. I hope and pray it doesn't come to anything like that. The moral of the story, people are still people and people are complicated. You can conjole them. You can even bribe them with lottery stuff. You can do all sorts of things. But I think the important part of this was what Dr. Gandhi said in this piece. Just another talking head or somebody like an Anthony Fauci or even the president or even a governor is just another expert telling people what to do. That's only going to go so far, no matter how you incentivize things, the much more effective way is for people in their communities to talk to each other. Talk to your family, talk to your friends, talk to your neighbors. Make the good health care decisions that are best for you and yours and advocate for the people that you know and you know their situation with knowledge of their life. That's always going to be far more effective no matter how much money we spend on it. There's fair criticism here. Uh, Jim Justice spent something like 11 or $12 million of CARES Act money on this lottery while other hundreds of millions of those dollars sat until the user lose date came due. That's a fair criticism. I understand it was a good intention, but like everything else, vaccine lotteries and vaccine promotion by our government, state and local and national, is one more thing where we should be holding our government accountable. And if it doesn't work, we should tell them this isn't working. Please stop spending our money on it, even if it's well-intentioned. There's better ways to do things. And like almost all things, the local level, when it comes to convincing people, is where the battle is, and it's also the most effective way to do it. I don't sell a lot of copy that don't make national headlines, and it sure doesn't get national funding. But over and over and over again, we find it to be the truth. Let's have more government focused on local issues that have local solutions, and one by one, those localities and municipalities and local places can start making the whole of the country better more hotel right after this Welcome back to Hurt Town. Thrilled to be with you. And I get to talk about, y'all know, is my absolute favorite subject in the world, West Virginia. Uh, journalist John W. Miller, he has a great little documentary on Moundsville, West Virginia. Morning, sir. Appreciate you joining us. Thank you very much for the time.
1: Good morning to you. Great to be here.
0: Um, you have a journalism background. How does a nice uh, Wall Street Journal level journalist wind up making a documentary about Moundsville, West Virginia?
1: So I moved to Pittsburgh in uh, 2011 and, you know, Western Pennsylvania and West Virginia, you know, they call Pittsburgh the the capital of West Virginia. And I think that's that's almost accurate. Uh, And the whole region is is full of these towns that used to have these glorious, glamorous factories and very prosperous communities. And then the 2016 election happened. Everybody was talking about these towns, but they weren't talking about the people in the towns. They were talking about, you know, basically who they voted for. National politics became this obsession and Trump became an obsession and I thought, what if you went and spent time in one of these towns and only talked about the people and their work and, and didn't like get distracted by national politics and created relationships with them and, and conversations with them? And so I started going to Moundsville, which I, I saw as a very archetypical town. It had the world's biggest toy factory. They made Rock'em Sockam Robots there, it had a Native American burial mound that was 2,000 years old. And now it has you know, a Walmart and a hospital, just very, very classic American town and I just got very into, interested in it. And I met a filmmaker and said, hey, why, why don't we make a movie? And we got $4,000 from Pittsburgh Arts Council and spent a year shooting it and premiered in the town itself with the people you know, from the town watching. Uh, and that was it. And then PBS picked it up. And it's been very in- interesting, stimulating ride because it's so it's a universal story.
0: It's universal. But one of the things that make it universal is there's some really deep roots here. Uh, the Burial Mound is far back beyond recorded human history for all practical purposes. They don't even know the actual name of those people that built it. They've assigned a name to them. Uh, Meriwether Lewis has a journal entry about Moundsville that he wrote about the mound and, of Lewis and Clark fame. These are deep, deep roots in this town. Um, how does that play when you go to dig into it? Because Not just because you're you know, from the area anyway, but when you've got deep roots like that and you're trying to tell a modern tale on it, how does that play into it?
1: So just to set the scene, I mean, the mound is right in the middle of town. This is not just some tourist attraction out of the way. It sits, you know, basically on Main Street. It, it hovers over the town. It's an incredible thing to see on the river. And, and you know, very, very famous visitors. Charles Dickens has also been to see it. Um, and so it's in, it's in everybody's consciousness. And for me, what it does is that it reminds you that, uh, you know, civilizations ebb and flow, time goes forward. And what I wanted to do, too, with this documentary is, acknowledge the real grief people have for the 50s and 60s you know times when there were more jobs and times where th- things were better but also say you know time moves forward and the mound is an ever-present reminder of that you know the, the Adina people that as you point out the um, you know civilization is, is unclear uh you know they, they had their time and and it's gone now and and you can't get around that time moves forward and the mound is that i think a very healthy reminder of that kind of like a greek chorus you know singing that that tune throughout the movie and we have amazing stories. You know, they had a bar on top of the mound at one point. There was a fight of whether it was appropriate or not to have a Christmas tree. I mean, these, it, the mound's kind of like a character, I think. Um, and, and it's alive in that way.
0: And one interesting thing was something that's such a known worldwide tourist attraction, though, is how do the locals see it, though? Because obviously you, you talked about Charles Dickens saw it, Meriwether Lewis saw it. Anybody that goes there has to see it. What, what is their perception of it, though? Is it part of their identity or is it just something they feel like they have to live with like some other tourist destinations?
1: That's a good question. It, it is part of their identity and, and they're proud of it. They, um, you know, tourism is how these towns are one, one of the ways these towns survive now. And so not only, I mean, it, it has an economic benefit, but also, I mean, they all went to see the mound in school. They all know about the Adena people, you know, they're, they're way more schooled in the history of Native America than that most people in small towns.
0: Yeah. And then if you're my age and grew up in West Virginia, Moundsville was something that you got told about constantly because the threat was we're going to send you to Moundsville <laughs> if you don't sit down and shut up and behave because the other thing and when you're, you know, you talk about the two things that loom over the town from the mound, you're looking right at it, that giant wall, uh, the penitentiary that dominated that town for uh, what better part of almost 120 years.
1: So did I say that it was archetypical? I mean, this has uh, one of the most famous uh, tales of, of incarceration. And that's another thing that is very distinctive about America is we, we lock up a lot of people. And, and this this prison was super famous and it was in movies like um, Night of the Hunter and, and Fool's Parade. Uh, it was and it closed in 95, by the way. Um, it was seen as, as, as inhumane. And, and it is. I mean, the cells are the size of bathrooms. Um, it was where the last recorded hanging was as an electric chair. people go see. It's also a big tourist attraction. and a huge draw for people who investigate the paranormal. So uh, ghost tourism, as, as they put it. And I found that fascinating, too.
0: What is it with a town when you have, I mean, they're almost like dual pillars because they stand right pretty close to each other. You have the mound. You have the penitentiary. But this is really a kind of a typical American town story because, what does a town that is built on industry, and you can talk about the industry of the Ohio River Valley up through there, when the industry goes away, what we're really dealing with here is a people trying to reckon with who their town is, because what it was built around is no longer there, but the people remain.
1: Well, a lot of them leave. I mean, a lot of the people who are more ambitious and have you know more advanced degrees and can make more money if they go to Pittsburgh or New York, they leave. So these towns have had depopulation. And I think that's a really important factor to reckon with that you've had depopulation. The towns are, are aging. And again, this is just reality. So it doesn't do it any good to pretend that you have a bunch of healthy young workers who can just fill a factory jobs. If you build a factory, because it's not true. So these towns have to struggle. And part of my point too, is that it's not hell. Like there's still income. There's still some work. I mean, working at Walmart is not as good as working at the factory, but it's still a job and, and you can carve out a good life for yourself. If you work hard and, 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 you know, there's sort of that, that nuance there that like some people have very fulfilling lives in places like this, and they're happy, and they're and they're not like you know wallowing in, in misery on, and, and on opioids. Like most people are, in Appalachia are not hooked on opioids, and so I know that story is important too, and 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 the, the you know opioid story and the drugs and and all that stuff's important too, but it's not the only story. And so I wanted to tell basically the rest of the story about what people are actually doing. So in our movie, we have, for example, a factory that makes kitchen cabinets and that that employs 15 people. Okay, it's not a huge factory, but it's still still a thriving business that sells kitchen cabinets for people all over Appalachia and employs a lot of robots as manufacturers do now. And there's a lot of companies like this scattered throughout the region. And I, I think they deserve you know, their sort of place in the economic story, too. It's not just the Walmart. It's not just the hospital. There are businesses, but it, it also is the Walmart and it also is the hospital. And those places, I mean, they have their own challenges. Like they don't pay enough, frankly. And so that's important to say, too.
0: Yeah, we're talking to John W. Miller. He has a wonderful documentary, uh, Moundsville. You can find it at moundsville.org. It also stream on PBS and your local PBS stations. Talk about that real quick, though, because you really focus on the people. There's a million ways to make a documentary. Documentary filmmaking is having a real renaissance right now. There's a million ways to do it. You know, we all grew up with, you know, the Ken Burns, the Zoom and Pan kind of stuff. You you kept this. Sim- there was a lot of just straight to camera, the people talking. And I find that although it's a simple method, it's it's a very powerful method because it's just them telling their own stories in their own worlds, And you have to pay attention to it.
1: And also, there's no outside experts in the film. Everybody in the film lived in Moundsville. Um, only two people didn't. One is somebody who left, uh, Tracy, the drummer, and then Mark Harshman, who is the West Virginia poet laureate. He lives nearby in Wheeling. He lived in Moundsville for a long time, though. So you, know, you could say it's a talking head documentary, but I think it's richer than that because, like you said, uh, it's everybody from everybody in the movie is from the town. And anytime we make like a bigger point, like a point about society or capitalism, it's always somebody who's just. Uh, an ordinary person making a shrewd observation based on their lived experience. It's not, um, you know, not not to dismiss academics, but it's not like somebody in an ivory tower looking from afar saying, well, this happened. No, these people live, they live through losing their their jobs. They live through factories closing. They live through these big forces we talk about, like capitalism and global trade. Like they saw its impact uh, in their own lives.
0: Yeah. And I find it very effective. We're talking Moundsville. We're talking about the Moundsville documentary with john w miller on heard tell and we'll continue this conversation right after this Uh, Welcome back to Herd Tell. Appreciate you staying with us. We're talking to John W. Miller. Uh, We're talking about Moundsville, West Virginia, and a wonderful documentary about a town that's like a lot of other towns. uh, After the industrial goes away, uh, what do we make of ourselves? Identity. There was some real identity touch points to Moundsville in the documentary. You mentioned it earlier, but I don't know that people understand the toy factory angle of that. Now, if you just say Rock'em Sock'em Robots, everybody knows what that is but I don't think they realized that there was a toy industry in this kind of a small town.
1: There were a bunch of toy factories around the area. I think one in Erie too. And also the Ohio river. I mean, you think about the Ohio river, you think, Oh, it's coal, it's steel, but no, the Ohio river was like, you know, China in the, now in the 1950s, the Ohio river made everything. You you can make cigars, clothes, shoes, toys, the whole supply chain was based around the Ohio river and it made stuff for the whole, the whole world. And um, so Mark's toy plant was there for about 50 years, uh, and the two big products, they, they're very famous, are, are the big wheel, the little toy, the uh, scooter kids for kids, and then Rock'em Sock and Robots. And it, it closed around 1980, uh, in part from, because of competition from Asia, but also kids, kids started playing video games. And so there is an example of you know, the creative destruction of capitalism. Nothing wrong with video games and nothing wrong with you know, consumers making other choices. But it does mean that you don't need those toys anymore. And so it closed. Uh, and that's a, over a thousand jobs were lost. Um, and not just uh, people in factories, but designers and artists. And so you talk about like the, the brain drain and, and and depopulation. You know, what's been lost is also a lot of creative capital and people who paid for local theater, people who paid to go to concerts. So then this whole economy of, of, of creativity and art uh, was impoverished when, when a place like Mark's Tories closed. And, and that's a big deal, too.
0: Yeah. And you mentioned it a minute ago, talking about the cabinet factory. It doesn't sound like, you mentioned it, 15 jobs doesn't sound like a lot of jobs. But when you're in a smaller town of you know eight 9,000 people, whatever Moundsville is down to now, that's 15 families. 15 families in a community like that, that's, that's a wider radius than you think it is. is. Is some of it just kind of retooling and going like, yeah, a small business of 10 or 15 people doesn't sound like a lot, but you start getting three or four of those things, you really do have a base of industry and a base of support for a town and a community again.
1: It's true because they'll, they'll have suppliers and then you know, a lot of it's robots now, automation. And so, again, that's, that's nobody's fault. That's just the way you know, technology and progress go. So um, they will have higher profits uh, per person and make more money and uh, buy from local suppliers. So you're right. No, there, there is a, a network effect of, of companies like that.
0: Yeah. And there's also, uh, you mentioned the tourism before, you briefly mentioned the paranormal tourism. Seems like one of those things where a community has a little bit of a love-hate relationship with it, because I'm sure they're happy for the dollars, they're happy for people. I, I love the gentleman that was just driving around town, just pointing out restaurants and things like this. I-, I He tickled me to death. But that's sort of a kind of the modern push-pull on some of this stuff. It's like, yeah, we need the money, but do we really want to be known as the ghost place? And do we really want to be known as the penitentiary town and this sort of thing, isn't it?
1: I'm sure there, yeah, there are people who are are, are skeptical, but uh, you can't beat the um, you know the revenue from from tourism because it it requires you know minimal capital investment, and then you can get you you stimulate the economy in a lot of ways. Um, restaurants, uh, stores, all benefit from tourism. I think it's three million dollars a year now. The impact of tourism on Moundsville. And by the way, the first thing that really caught my eye when I went there was I saw a sign that said "Paranormal Hot Dog Stand." And I thought, what is this? And I went in there and I met Steve Hummel and Steve he had wanted to be a Navy SEAL. That hadn't worked out. he had opened a gym that hadn't worked out. He'd opened a hot dog stand that wasn't working out. And so then he put some ghost stuff in there and called it a paranormal hot dog stand. And that was working. And so, I thought wow this guy is such a hustler and he, he's so you know courageous and he wants to stay in his town he's not giving up and it might look crazy to you but he's doing what he has to do to to you know feed himself and and feed his family and I really admired that I thought wow in the old days that guy had a factory job he didn't have to hustle well, look at him now like he has to be so creative and and so you know have so much um you know energy and and he's writing that guy's writing books and writing doing art now I mean that kind of hustle I think is also the story now in in, in towns like that, and and those people are not often talked about.
0: Yeah, and kind of semi related to that, there was several people, uh, younger people, in this documentary who talked about another issue that is really big all over. Uh, they talked about higher education or the lack thereof. We had the tour guide at the penitentiary where you just flat out asked him like, "What's your education level?" and he explained it, and and I thought his answer was really really interesting and kind of telling in a lot of ways.
1: So what he said was, um, I had a choice between going to college and getting a house, and I, I chose to get a house because a college degree doesn't always get you a great job around here.
0: I found that so telling because we we use bur- buzzwords like community and home and career, but man, that just that really hit me as real as like. He's more worried about having somewhere to live, and then I'll figure out the living later. That's kind of backwards to how a lot of the rest of society is. And I thought it was a very interesting viewpoint and a neat little window into how some of those folks think, though, isn't it?
1: And also, you know, college in America is too expensive now. The price has been way inflated, and you know, sort of intellectuals are afraid to say that, but it's true. And that, like, it's not worth it for a lot of people. And you know, things need to change. And the way change starts is you start by telling the truth. And so for that guy, college is too expensive. And I totally agree with him.
0: Uh, talking to John W. Miller, the wonderful uh, documentary Moundsville, you can find it on PBS, also moundsville.org. Please seek it out. Uh, you made it. So you tell me who, who's one or two of the people that you met uh, either on camera or off that's just kind of stuck with you now that you've had a little distance from making the film.
1: Yeah. So if I had to do it again, I would include a little more about Gene Saunders. So Gene is the only African-American mayor in the history of Moundsville. He's such a, a just a lovely, like high energy guy. Gene worked in the coal mines for a long time, which is uh, to my regret, not in the movie. He lost a leg in the coal mines. Uh, he had to battle you know, segregation in, in the fifties in and he just loves the town. And he's sort of one of these people who, you know, not everybody gets along with him. He doesn't get along with everybody. And that's okay. Like, he he is just a very like you know patriotic guy. Loves America. Loves you know freedom of speech. I just he's a very very you know uh, inspiring guy is is one. And then Steve, who has the the ghosts you know fat, uh, tourism stuff. Like life didn't turn out the way that guy wanted. He wanted to be a Navy SEAL and he had all these dreams and and they didn't work. But he didn't give up. And so I, I really admire that.
0: Yeah, I do too. All right, I've been praising the documentary. I got to take you to task for one minor item in it. Uh, you call yourself a banjo guy, and yet nowhere in this documentary, I get accordions, I get tin whistles, I get toy pianos. <laughs> Where's the? Ba- did, were you just afraid of the stereotype? Were you scared of it? Did you have a hand injury? What happened here? How'd you do a West Virginia documentary without a banjo? <laughs>
1: well, it, in the end, it, se- it did seem too cliche, and we wanted to be a little different. Uh, the truth is also my partner, Dave Bernabo, the, my filmmaking partner, uh, is a very sort of alternative creative type shall we say who loves doing things a bit weird and so he had i think he bought like you know tin whistle from the 50s and he got like you know he bought all this very esoteric stuff to put the soundtrack together and he's a musician like you know he did stuff like he would play a tune and play it backwards and like use an old an old um uh i forget what else is what else is in the i think he, he bought like a, a old record and then played it back backwards and then the tin whistle um, yeah. So the, the soundtrack is definitely alternative. I mean, probably is because we couldn't afford to hire real musicians too. <laughs> um, but, and he often, I think I offered to play the banjo and, and was not, was not hired by my own uh, music director.
0: <laughs> but it, it works because it does kind of throw you off at first. Like oh, that's kind of an interesting soundtrack. But then when you get to one of the pivot points in the film, when they start talking about the toy factory and you see the old mechanical press 10 toys, and then you hear that toy piano, and it's it. like it all clicks, and it's very wonderfully done. So I'm, I'm saying that ingested. The Banjo probably wouldn't have worked right there, but maybe the next film, uh, John W. Miller, it's a wonderful film. Let people know where they can find it and where they can follow you and what other projects you have going right now.
1: So the film's available on PBS, uh, PBS app on the Roku or PBS.org. Uh, Moundsville.org has a longer cut that you can rent for four bucks and also has a lot of information, essays and explanations about the film. Um, I'm working on another film about uh, uh, middle class families in Milwaukee and the American dream, which is why I'm wearing a Bucks hat. Uh, (laughs) And so that's in production. And then uh, my Twitter handle is at JWM journalist and I I write for America magazine. So I've been doing this column this year called The Moral Economy about trying to make a more uh, just and moral economy. And then I, you know, I, I write for magazines and freelance, um, and write stuff for moundswell.org too. Which uh, this year will have over hundred thousand views to my surprise. So I've kept that. I started to promote the film, but it's turned into the, its own little independent magazine. So that's the beauty too of you know self-publishing. Now you can do it basically with, with no cost. I don't make any money off Moundsville.org, but um, I love doing it. I love the conversations. I love being part of this. You know, trying to think a little more you know humanely and, and, and intelligently ab- about Appalachia
0: yeah i love it i appreciate the voice because as as somebody who's a very proud west virginia doing more national kind of media i i always have it in the back of my mind that you got to kind of represent so i appreciate it greatly it's a great film i hope people check it out and i look forward to what you're doing in the future john w miller it's great stuff thank you very much for the time today sir i appreciate you
1: so great to be here have a happy new year
0: yeah happy new year to you my friend thank you very much Donaldson. So, uh, you may have heard tell that folks are still arguing and debating and having a lot of back and forth about the vaccines. Uh, one side note, something we want to touch on. We've touched on it before on the program. Uh, this is from our buddy uh, Michael Siegel, who's a frequent guest on this show, one of the smartest people we know. He knows what he's talking about. He's a scientist, and we have to believe all scientists. So, you have to believe everything he says, except for some of his science fiction opinions, of course. But seriously, for a second, um, Folks are talking about the vaccines. There's this thing called VAERS, V-A-E-R-S. It's a reporting system for when you have a problem with a drug, in this case, the vaccines. And people use VAERS data on social media a lot, and I think a lot of them don't really understand what it is. VAERS is like Yelp, okay? Anybody can go on VARES and say anything they want. It's not verified information. It's just raw data from unsecured sources. Now, it does have a use. And what it is used for is scientists will watch that to see if a trend is developing, and then they look into the trend. So if you have a whole bunch of people saying this is happening, this is a side effect, they will look into it. Now, the problem with something that's been highly political, highly politicized, like the COVID-19 vaccine, is you have people bum-rushing it and putting in a lot of things but there are uses for, for example, uh, a lot of folks discussing the vaccines have brought up myocarditis, uh, the heart condition. Is that an issue? Is it not? Is it, this is from our friend Howe. Uh, to give you some perspective, VAERS sounded early warnings on myocarditis, followed up with the VDS. VDS is the vaccine safety data link. That is what is actually used for research. So they take this VAERS data and then they dig into it, and then what they find from the VERS data, the raw data, the unconfirmed data that can come from anybody, they look into it with this VSD system. Look at it like uh, somebody complaining on Yelp about a dirty restaurant. Well, that doesn't mean it's actually dirty, but the health department may take that Yelp review, if there's been a bunch of them, and go investigate and see if anything's to it. Maybe it's something personal somebody had or a disgruntled employee or whatever the case may be, and it's not true, or it is true, then the health department would take action through official channels. Understand the difference? That's not a perfect comparison, but that's basically what's going on here. Anyway, back to Michael. To give you some perspective, VER sounded early warning on myocarditis. Follow-up with VDS showed that the side effect is very rare and usually resolves quickly. That's the role that both systems play, canary in the coal mine, and actual carbon monoxide detector. It's important that we understand how these systems work. Just because it has a fancy acronym and has data you like doesn't mean you need to start smashing SEND on it without looking into it. Follow good, smart people. Get good information. Get on that magical Google machine and actually do your own research before you spread information. Vars has a use. We're not saying it's useless. But like a lot of things, it can be bad for you. It's like the great Vin Scully says, statistics are used much like a drunk uses a lamppost for support not illumination make sure we're spreading illumination and good information all part of what we need to do to turn down the noise of the news cycle and use good information to discern our times more heard tell right after this Ah, Welcome back to Heard Tell. You probably uh, heard tell of me yesterday. Hopefully you watched the program. If you didn't, uh, if you're subscribed to any of the podcasting platforms or YouTube, you can go back and watch it. I said, we don't do New Year's resolutions. I'm just not going to do them. I don't like to disappoint myself uh, and add another name to the list of people that I've disappointed. Uh, I don't do New Year's resolutions. I've given up on them. Uh, Writing in the Atlantic, Faith Hill, No, not that one. Uh, Associate editor of the Atlantic Faith Hill has a piece called Don't Make Resolutions. And I think she has some interesting points here. Um, Quote, believe me, I've tried every trick in the book. Psychologists, business people, and motivational coaches offer endless, sometimes conflicting advice. Set bite-sized goals that you can realistically accomplish. Set difficult goals that stimulate you with a challenge. Make your goals easy to measure. Seek meaningful well-being rather than shallow self-improvement. Oh, here's a good one. Avoid temptation. How's that working out for you? Visualize success. Word salad. Congratulate yourself for progress. Don't give up if you're lagging. Yet, according to research, New Year's resolutions aren't just aren't likely to work. Lisa Ordonez, the dean of UC San Diego's management school, told me that the most goals get abandoned about a month into the year. For the past few years, the fitness app company Strava has shared the day in January its users were most likely to give up on their exercise targets, what it cruelly deems Quitter's Day. That's in air quotes. In a 2018 YouGov poll, only 6% of people who made a resolution were fully able to meet it. You might figure out that declaring resolutions don't hurt, even if you don't complete them. Again, we're reading Faith Hill in The Atlantic. But that's not necessarily true. The very act of goal setting can undermine results if it feels like homework. One study that directed people to practice flossing, yoga, or agami making found that focusing on desired results actually predicated lower achievement. If goals are too narrow or too challenging or too many people are attempted at once, they can obscure the bigger picture or lead people to focus disproportionately on short-term gains. Getting goals just right is hard, thus Ordonez's paper, Goals Gone Wild, advises businesses to think of goal setting as a quote, a prescription strength medication that requires careful dosing, consideration of harmful side effects, and close supervision. As she told me that she thinks similar principles can apply to New Year's resolutions. Spend too much energy on them, they can distract from other tasks, and from your relationships. Feeling like you're failing to meet them can lead you to giving up entirely. That's from Faith Hill in the Atlantic writing about New Year's resolutions, which I'm fine if you want to do them, but I'm against them, as we would say back home. I love this quote. You need to write this down, put it on your refrigerator. Goals are, quote, a prescription strength medication that requires careful dosing, consideration of harmful side effects, and close supervision. Uh, As in all things, folks, moderation. One of the reasons we talk about turning down the noise here, why we talk to a vast variety of people from across the spectrum of ideas and viewpoints. Perspective is important. If you focus down on one thing, you get tunnel vision, then you can lose your place, not only in the world, but in yourself. Goals are great things, but anything can become destructive if it's not well managed. This is a great piece in the Atlantic from Faith Hill. I encourage you to seek it out. No, not that Faith Hill. This is the writer, an excellent writer, by the way. Uh, seek it out. That'll do it for her Tell today. Uh, we're so thrilled that you're joining us. Uh, two strong shows to start the year. We're working really hard to bring you the best we can in turning down the noise of the news cycle and getting the information that matters so that we can discern our time. Uh, Our time on this earth is precious as we've all seen, and we want to make sure we're using it and seeing things clearly and trying to do a little bit of good with it. However, you're watching and or listening to the program, if you could leave a comment and a rating, that would be great. Make sure you subscribe on all those platforms. You really want to do us a solid, share us on your social media, let people know where to find us uh, either on the YouTube channel or any of the podcasting platforms, iTunes, Spotify, Herd Tell, we're even on some overseas ones that I can't even pronounce, but we're on there. So if you want to listen to us in Germany or India or wherever you may be, have at it. We're there. Just put in Herd Tell, put in my name, Andrew Donaldson should come right up. You got a smart speaker, just tell uh Alexis or Siri or whoever uh to play you herd tell. it should pull you right up. We'd love to hear from you uh social media uh at Herd Tell Show on the Twitter. Her-tell show at gmail.com. If you want to send us an email, we'll read it, might even read it on the show. Love to hear from you, love to interact with you. Most of all, thank you for helping us start out 2022 strong. The feedback was great. Uh, and we're looking forward to all the things we're going to do in the coming year. We hope it's a blessed year, wherever you and yours are across the street or around the world. We hope you are well. We hope you're well fed. And we'll talk to you tomorrow on Hertel. All the music on HerTel is provided under a creative content license from Monstercat.com. For the
1: ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need.